guys, we have an exciting new episode for you this week. We hosted a live event at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. this past Tuesday with legendary reporter Bob Woodward, national political correspondent Karen Tumulty, and 2017 Pulitzer Prize winner David Farenthold. The night was a blast. You guys are going to love this episode. Have a listen. Good evening. Welcome to the Warner Theater and our first ever live taping of Can He Do That? Since this is a live taping, we ask that you please put your phones on silent. You can take photographs. In fact, we encourage you to take pictures and post them all over social media. But please make sure your flash is off. And now, without further ado, and in the words of Jeb Bush, please clap for your host, Allison Michaels. Welcome to Can He Do That Live? (laughs) We're so excited. Our podcast explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. This is, in fact, the Washington Post's first ever live podcast taping. Thank you so much for being with us. And as we mentioned, please do turn off your phones. This will be recorded, so if you come up to ask questions at the end, you will be recorded and distributed on our feed later in the week. So this has been a complete honor for me over the past year to host this podcast. And it's been an even bigger honor to take the time to perfect the intonation of, can he do that? It's harder than it sounds, people. It really is. But tonight, we have an amazing show for you. First, we're going to start off the night by looking back at the biggest moments of the year that had you asking, can he do that? I I promise I'll stop. That was the last one. (laughs) Then we'll move on to news of the week. After that, we will look at how this presidency compares to presidencies of the past. And finally, like I said, we will end up taking your questions at the end of the night. So start brainstorming them now. But without further ado, here is our amazing panelists of guests. First, we have our national political correspondent whose smart analysis you cannot live without and who, if you are not following on Twitter, you're doing it wrong, the great Karen Tumulty. And this next guy won a 2017 Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on Trump's charitable giving, the one, the only, David Farenthold. And last, but certainly not least, some of you may have heard of this guy. He is famous for his investigative reporting of the Nixon administration, the legendary Bob Woodward. All right. So... We will go ahead and get started. When we began this podcast earlier this this year, back in January, we had made a list of topics that we were really excited to cover, things that we thought would really be the places where we would ask about presidential power the most, things like things that Trump had promised on the campaign trail, like hiring his children to work in office or spending weekends at Mar-a-Lago. And within one to two weeks of administration, we realized a planned list of ideas was garbage and that we would need to keep up with the pace of news and react in real time. So we, we've done that. But you may have forgotten about some of these moments. So we're going to go through and talk about some of the biggest moments of the year. So this first question, Bob, is for you. 
Now, you know about presidential power perhaps better than any of us in this room. For you, was there a moment this year where you found yourself asking, can he do that? Can President Trump do the thing he's doing? Uh, yes. Uh, for, first of all, these microphones, Gordon Liddy never provided <laughs> such a, a, astute uh, audio. Uh, first of all, I think you have to look at the uh, power of a president. And presidents, uh, I've written books about eight presidents, from Nixon to Obama, and I think they have more power uh, each time. And so can Trump do this? Yes, he can. He's the focus. People, uh, and, it, and it's not just that he has constitutional power, he has cultural power. And because he, if, if, if you go by a television or if you're, uh, I mean, walk by a television and he's on, you have to stop because mm -hmm. he is uh, somebody like we've never seen before. Yeah. Karen, same question to you. Was there a moment this year where you found yourself asking what the limitations were on presidential power? Um, you know, I, certainly all the way through the campaign, all of us would say, that one's going to get him. He's not going to survive that one. But what's extraordinary is the degree to which he has governed exactly the way he campaigned. And for me, the moment when he sort of crossed the blood-brain barrier from can he do that to he just did that was when he fired the FBI director. Right. Right. Yeah, that was a big moment. I think had a lot of us questioning where the lines of obstruction of justice actually were at that moment. And Dave, you cover hotels and golf clubs of President Trump and Trump's businesses, <laughs> uh, among other things. Um, and was, is there a moment in your reporting on those topics where you've seen some action that you've questioned whether or not was in, within his power? Well, basically, the whole process has been him choosing to hang on to effectively ownership, not quite control, but ownership of these properties while he's president. And that's one thing that's been really interesting for me to watch. You know, obviously, how is the business? We're interested in how the business has affected his presidency. What's he doing to benefit people who give him money, like appointing a Mar-a-Lago member to be the ambassador to the Dominican Republic last week, choosing another guy who was a Mar-a-Lago member to be ambassador to Austria, based only on the fact that he had watched The Sound of Music 50 times, uh, <laughs> which I have also watched that movie 50 times, and nobody asked me. Uh, but also, it's been interesting for me to, we talk about can he do that, it's not just a legal, legal question, for me it's also a business question. It's been interesting for me to watch how Trump's presidency and his entanglement with the business has changed the business, in some ways positively for Trump, bringing in new customers, but also in a lot of ways negatively. Um, so to me, that's, that's been the extra dimension of this question, where there's been consequences for him, positive and negative, of him choosing to maintain that entanglement that go beyond just what Congress lets him get away with. If, is any of it illegal, David? No. I mean, not the, anything that I've seen so far. The president has such wide powers to do whatever he wants in this area. I mean, it would be illegal for literally anyone else in the government, except for him and Mike Pence. Uh, but for him, I haven't seen anything so far that I think is illegal. But there's a question whether, the, you know, the president of the United States, I don't think it's, a, it's not a settled legal question whether he can be indicted. Basically, the only relevant question is can he be impeached? And Congress, you know, Congress can decide for itself what amounts to a high crime and a misdemeanor. 
That's right, that's right. So in terms of other moments that really stuck out, at least for me this year, the travel ban was a, was a big one. I think we all looked at President Trump's power at that moment, and he has issued this via executive action and wondered whether or not he could, in fact, institute this order. Now we've seen the courts have basically said that he cannot, but but how did you guys feel about that moment? Karen, how did you feel when, when he issued the travel ban? Well, I think that, that that was Donald Trump running into the fact that you know, the, the framers actually set up three branches of government. One of those branches is, is you know, basically, you know, been supine. But the other one uh, has, in fact, uh, you know, <laughs> has, in fact, arisen. But he, as a result, he has questioned the legitimacy of the judiciary. And again, he gave us a hint of that during the campaign when he said that, you know, because a judge happened to be of Mex Mexican descent, that, that he was not, you know, he should not be judging a case involving Donald Trump. Right. So he has brushed up against certainly other branches of government. Immediately after the election, this question's for you, Dave, did you feel like you could anticipate that this was going to continue in the way that it has, or have you been repeatedly surprised by Trump's actions? Uh, I have... Yes, I've been surprised by one facet of the, well, a number of facets of the Trump presidency, but one in particular, which is that his, he has used his power so poorly. He has done, he has been so ineffective at advancing the actual concrete aims that he started out with. There's a lot of things that he's done that have been shocking or have broken norms, uh, uh, perhaps even broken the law, we'll find out uh, that, but the the things that he it said, said he wanted to do, he's been so ineffective at getting them done and made so little effort to understand the levers of government that he, he had available to him. I mean, the, the, there's been a number of examples, but the travel ban is one, uh, sort of running headlong into this judicial interference or judicial block, but also the health care bill, right? He had, this was a guy who cons consistently sabotaged his own goal by not understanding the policy issues and not understanding the way that the Congress worked. I mean, to have the House pass a bill and then to call that bill mean, just one example I was thinking of today, I, I've been surprised at how ineffective he has been uh, and how often he's self-sabotaging. Yeah, very interesting. And in, in, in a way, uh, it was last year, Bob Costa, one of our colleagues at the Post, very, very I mean, I, sometimes, he's about 31 years old. Yes. Uh, and already a great political reporter, he and I interviewed Trump. And uh, one of the techniques with any interview, and it applies uh, to Trump also, you have to learn to shut up and listen. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't have to shut up very long because <laughs> Trump wants to talk. And so if you let him talk, and he said, oh, yeah, you know, I probably hit people too hard. And then he said a friend of his, a famous sports figure, called him up and said, and he quoted the sports figure, said, Donald, you don't have to kill everyone. You're, you may need them on the way back. And we got into a discussion of... All successful politics, as Karen, is coalition building. You've got to bring people in rather than kick them out. And uh, he's just not using that leverage of the presidency to his own purpose. 
Yeah. Interestingly, though, he does keep people in his orbit for a long time, even after he's parted ways with them, right? So people like Steve Bannon, he still talks to on a regular basis. That's been surprising to me. I mean, Karen, have you, has his relationship with people who have left his sort of loyal cohort, has that been, been interesting to watch? Well, uh, but I, I think that his personal relationships, um, yes, we, we have spent so much time, and I would actually fault us in the media for perhaps spending too much time looking at his personal relationships and his personal orbit. And the fact is, Bob is right. He has, what he has neglected are the institutional relationships mm -hmm. that he needs. And that's important because successive presidents starting, you know, in the early 20th century have left Donald Trump an extraordinarily powerful executive branch. Uh, president after president after president, it's become larger. It has, Congress has essentially ceded all foreign po policy powers. Uh, you know, Congress hasn't declared war since 1941, and how many wars have we been in since then? Many. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it's, presidents start wars. Right. And, they, pre they, and yeah. even in basic things, like they, they can't pass spending bills anymore. Mm -hmm. Congress has essentially handed over a lot of power to the executive branch, and were Trump more skillful at using those institutional levers and those institutional relationships, uh, you know, I think he would have gotten a lot more done. So you're suggesting maybe attacking Mitch McConnell on Twitter is not a good idea. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, one great example of this, the, one of the most recent was, uh, there was a time recently when John Cornyn, the Senate, the number two guy in the Republican Party in the Senate, uh, he was asked, well, you know, what is your plan on, I think it was a health care bill. What's your plan on health care bill, on this health care bill? And Cornyn said, well, I'm with the president. I'll do whatever the president wants, talking about the supine legislative branch. And they, the reporter said, well, what does the president want in this case? And Cornyn said, he just gestured <laughs> like that. So he was with the president, even though the president didn't know where he was. Right. Uh, that's, that's how much power Trump inherited. Boy, I mean, and he it, made fun of Hillary Clinton for having a slogan, I'm with her. Right, exactly, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> he, he's, that's the power Congress is still willing to give to this president, and he doesn't know how to use it. Yeah, wow. So, Gee, I'm glad you brought up Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> because I... I, I how many people in the audience, if we can take a poll of the audience, is that Please fair? Do. How many people have had something in their life not turn out well and they were <laughs> disappointed? <laughs> okay. Every, some people have two hands. <laughs> How many of you wrote a 450-page <laughs> book about it? No hands. <laughs> No, seriously. I mean, that is something that uh, I, I was shocked to read through it and see, you know, there's some confessional quality, but then she will say, oh, but the Comey letter or the Russian influence and so forth. And uh, that elected Donald Trump as much as anything. Yeah, so speaking of electing Donald Trump, we're going to move into our News of the Week segment here. And we're going to focus on a question about Trump's approval ratings. 
and disapproval ratings. So the Washington Post and ABC News released a poll this week that gave President Trump a 37% approval rating, a 59% disapproval rating, making him the only president whose rating at this point in his presidency is in fact net negative, and that's by 22 points, which is significant. So Karen, the first question is to you, does it matter? Um, we have every single poll story, it feels like, that we at the Washington Post have written in this presidency begins with the line that this is the lowest number recorded for any president <laughs> in the history of polling. And yet, you look down into that poll and you ask people, were you given the same choice today that you were given 364 days ago? How would you choose? And you see that it would be a tie, which was pretty close to the way it mm -hmm. came out then. So um, I think that the two things that have been surprising are, in part, the sort of leeway that this president has had with his supporters, how completely loyal his base is. And the second is that he has chosen to govern uh, in a way that does not try to bring in the people who opposed him. Yeah, but Bob, do you think this he can do you think he can get reelected? Say that again. Do you think President Trump can get reelected with these approval numbers? Uh, sure. The, I mean, what are you measuring? Uh, these are snapshots at this moment, and Trump has done lots of things that have gathered lots of attention in the news media and it's covered. And you know, people say if you go out and I, I'm gonna be very direct about this and pour garbage on someone or somebody pours garbage on themselves and then you come along and take a poll, do you smell anything? <laughs> the answer is I smell garbage. Right. And uh, it, it, it is a, a measurement of that moment and uh, Politics, as we know, is a game of recovery, and we've seen all kinds of politicians who seem like they're in the dust and out, and uh, they survive, and they come back. So uh, for me, I, I think the polls are kind of interesting. I'm not sure if, uh, I, I just think they don't necessarily tell you what the end point is gonna be for Trump or his presidency or any policy he has. Yeah, and one wild card I think here is we are at a moment where our politics and our party allegiances are so unsettled that once again people are talking about a potential independent coming in, some kind of, if not a third party, some other guy with a lot of resources and name ID coming in as an independent candidate. And I think a third party candidate could also be Donald Trump's ticket to re-election. Mm -hmm. I mean, Trump said he's been so lucky to run against the Democratic Party that is, has nobody. Mm -hmm. uh, Hillary Clinton, as you said, has eaten up a lot of the attention that you, from the Democratic side this year, and that's great for Trump because uh, he, he knows how to fight her. There's nobody else out there that's taken that place. So Trump is that low without really anybody sort of on the other side. He's running against nobody. Until we know who that other person is going to be, it's, you know, it, I think Trump's the favorite to be reelected. If it were up to Donna Brazile, would it be Joe Biden? <laughs> right. Yeah, there's so much money to be made. If it were up to Joe Biden, it would right. be Joe Biden. Yeah, Joe Biden is true. That's right. <laughs> okay, so moving on to our next topic. We saw yet another horrible tragedy Sunday in Texas. At least 26 people have been killed when a man entered a church and began shooting. 
Trump's response to this has been that it's not a gun situation, but a mental health problem. He said this even though he signed a bill that rolled back Obama-era regulations that would have made it harder for people with mental illness to buy guns. So, Bob, what do you make of that? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure uh, mm -hmm. at all. And again, this... I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm in the mode of working on a book about Trump for next year. And uh, as Karl Rove used to always say, everything is about outcomes. And I, you know, how does he, what are the elements of putting together his presidency or the presidency just not working and collapsing? And I don't think, at least for that moment, for this moment, it's on that issue. Not on gun control. Do you, do you guys have a different opinion, either one of you? Well, I think this is this is a case where Trump actually has so would have so much leeway if he cared to use it. If this was a moment where he said, "Look, you know, these are my voters. I care a lot about them. Let's find some common sense way to tip, tap into the fact that a lot of people support expanded background checks or mental health." He could do something, I think, with the NRA support that would make people really. He, he could be very. He could break the mold. He has the leeway with those folks to break the mold, but he chooses not to. In this case, actually, the what we've learned today from the po reporting by the Post and others is that. The law actually prohibits this guy from having a gun, uh, mm -hmm. but the law, the people who were in charge of inputting the actual information in the database didn't do it. Right, right. Karen, do you have any thoughts on, on gun control? Well, I just think that the whole debate, and of course you have two Texans here in, in the middle of this, this panel, I, and you know, coming from where I come from, um, it, there are parts of the country in which the gun debate is a values debate. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, you know, our political system is so broken that when you pit one set of values against another set of values, you are always going to get nowhere. So until you kind of get to the point where people agree on a set of goals, uh, we are going to be, continue to be, you know, the country out of the entire world uh, where more people are killed in mass shootings than in any other country. Yeah. So speaking of other countries, President Trump is in Asia right now. And we saw that aside from dumping, you know, an entire bucket of, koi, of food into a koi pond, he has been making all kinds of headlines from Asia. And, and some of them has been a, a shift in his rhetoric about North Korea. He did say the era of strategic patience is over, but he's certainly not using language like fire and fury as he was when he was not nearing uh, North Korea. Uh, we just found out before we walked out that he, in fact, has canceled his visit to the DMZ uh, due to weather-related reasons. So, Bob, my question for you is, we've seen, we've seen a shift in his language over this trip, but we've seen all kinds of language from Trump when it comes to North Korea. Is his approach effective? Is this something that will be more effective than what other presidents have done? Well, when he started this very aggressive tweeting and commenting, it, it sounded like uh, there was almost a war fever in Washington about this. And I, I know there were lots of back-channel contacts between the United States and North Korea. And uh, the big mistake is to disparage negotiations, which Trump did. He said about Tillerson, his Secretary of State, well, our wonderful Secretary of State is wasting his time negotiating with the uh, North Koreans, and I, I think these were the back channels. And now you see Trump saying, oh, the North Koreans should come to the 
table. In other words, negotiations uh, are a desirable course, and I, I think they are. Uh, you talk to anyone who knows anything about North Korea and the whole military posture, it is absolutely true. It would be a catastrophe if there was a war, even uh, a non-nuclear war. So the way you win in the definition of diplomacy is you make a deal, and a deal is always... Uh, can, I, I have to, I'm always interested in the audience. How many people have been involved in negotiations at one point or another in their life? Okay. How many are married? <laughs> and, and it's the same question. Mm -hmm. And you... I always threaten my husband with fire and fury, for sure. Yes, okay. <laughs> I, uh, I believe that. <laughs> I see little Rocket Man is not taking out the garbage again. <laughs> but what happens in a negotiation, a successful one, is one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me. And... Uh, there may be a way to negotiate this confrontation away. Look at what Ronald Reagan did in the 80s uh, with the Soviet Union. Started out talking, you know, the, I mean, he sounded like Trump. Evil empire, tear down that wall. And then he worked a deal, and the deals led uh, in great part to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So negotiation works and the route of being tough and nasty may be the first step. Yeah, but I think a lot of people hear this really heated rhetoric coming from Trump and, Trump and feel, feel fearful. They don't necessarily, you know, think back to Ronald Reagan. They, they feel fear. Is that a justified fear? Do you think that, that it's something we should be worried about? Well, when you talk to um, ambassadors in Washington, and I think that one of the things that has people most unsettled is just the inconsistency. The fact that Trump sounds one tone one day, another the next. And I think, you know, both our allies and our adversaries, it's becoming clearer and clearer, don't know what is Trump and, and what is Trump's, you know, what's Trump's it? Do you think it's because he can't make up his mind or because it's tactical? He thinks, oh, you know, when uh, Costa and I interviewed him last year, one of the most important things Trump said, he, we were talking about power, and he said, real power is, I don't even like to use the word, but real power is fear. And I think he likes to work with fear and scare people. But there's also and, the fact that, you know, whatever he sees on Fox and Friends can set him off. So it's, you know, it's hard to a, sort of see what's A fair point. So what's, you know, this is the ultimate question. What's going on inside him? I, that's why I think it, it, it's one of the interesting questions, and I feel like I know this better more on the domestic side, but Trump's words, like Trump himself is often not in the position of making decisions that then flow down through the bureaucracy. Often other people are sort of, you know, which happens with presidents all the time, but particularly with him, are managing him. You know, his words come from somebody else. It's who talked to him last. What did he see last on TV? It's why the reporting of people around him who were influencing his decision. Like, why did he decide to go from Little Rocket Man to wanting to negotiate? There, there's got to be somebody there. Tellerson, Nikki Haley, somebody else saying, who convinced him of this rather than him. Okay, but I've been, having done some reporting on this, he was uh, very uh, 
caustic about Rocket Man, and uh, a lot of people inside told him, don't do that, that won't work. And then there came a back-channel message from the North Koreans saying, oh, we were willing to talk. So then Trump internally is able to say, see, it works. Mm -hmm. Fear, you need to leverage fear. Mm -hmm. And so now where that's going to go, and Karen's right, I mean, it looks very inconsistent. And uh, you, I, I don't think there's a grand strategy here but there may be that impulse to scare people, and sometimes fear works. Yeah, that in and of itself might be the strategy, I suppose. And we see Trump talk about fear a lot in the aftermath of, of attacks. For example, in the aftermath of, of New York last week, he seemed to really want to play into people's fears, you know, saying, People are getting into this country under this program. We should be fearful of this. I do think that fear is certainly a tactic for him, not just with North Korea, but seemingly with many issues domestically as well. All right, we went through those news of the week topics as fast as news moves in real time. <laughs> so we are going to move on to our history segment. So, Bob, I'm sure you've been asked this question many times, but people draw a comparison very often between President Nixon and President Trump and some of the actions we've seen. In your opinion, are those fair comparisons? Well, uh, for, you have to, in the context of Nixon and Watergate, what Nixon did, and it, this only came out incrementally, but it was an assault on our democratic system of how we select presidents and how we nominate presidents and all of his spying and espionage operations, which were illegal, were designed to make sure that he ran in 1972 against the easiest candidate. And he conducted a series of wars against the press, wiretaps, uh, setting up the plumbers, a unit in the White House to track down leaks. Uh, the, that plumbers unit broke into the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist uh, because Ellsberg had leaked the Pentagon Papers, so there was uh, an illegal war that Nixon ran. What we don't know what Trump did, and there are investigations going on. Uh, I think the, the press, particularly our newspaper, has done a very admirable job. It's kind of a smoke-it-out strategy of, you know, they said there were no meetings with Russians, and then there's this one and that one, and what really happened. We don't know yet. Uh, always the question is, what's the path to proof? Mm -hmm. In the case of Nixon, it was the tapes. If you didn't have the tapes, he would have stayed in office. Is there some equivalent in looking at this in terms of either showing something illegal and improper or exonerating the, I mean, Trump says, you know, there was no collusion, there was none, and there's a lot of things that need to be answered, and the, the inquiry, you know, has in many ways just begun. David's working on Trump and probably will be for the rest of his life. But Bob, <laughs> but Bob, Bob, had... Had Richard Nixon, had Watergate landed in today's tribal political culture, would Nixon have ever been impeached? 
I mean, I, you don't know, but if, if what happened, and, and first Nixon was not impeached, he resigned. And it was two years, two months of the drip, drip, drip of testimony, tapes, people in new secret illegal operations. And in the end, the Republicans rose up against right. Nixon. Uh, as much, I, I mean, I, I remember going to Barry Goldwater's apartment one night, and he had a diary, and he was the conscience of the Republican Party at that time. And he had met with Nixon, and Nixon said, well, uh, if I'm impeached, which was expected, uh, will I be convicted in the Senate? And Goldwater said, uh, you know, I counted, and there are four votes for you and I'm not one of them. <laughs> Talk about sticking it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the next day, Nixon announced he was resigning. It was the collapse of his party's support and the overwhelming evidence. Uh, we don't have anything. And, and, you know, we're in the Internet culture. It's all about impatience and speed. Tell me now what's going to happen. Where's it going to go? And... Who knows? Yeah. Along those lines, though, what the, the James Comey moment, can you tell us from your experience, having experienced the Saturday Night Massacre in real time, did you find that that was an analogous situation? Um, again, we're, we're going to have to see. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you say the James Comey moment, I think there were about four <laughs> or five James Comey moments. <laughs> the firing the, of James Comey. Yeah, and, uh, you know, let's... See, people are working on that, trying to f figure out what really happened, and the special prosecutor uh, is doing the same, but it does have echoes. Mm -hmm. And to fire the investigator uh, is, uh, sets off alarm bells. Hey, why? What's going on here? I don't think it's fully answered. And... Uh, as lots of analysts have pointed out, it's one of you know, David's point about Trump doing things that d defeat his own purpose. If he just kept Comey in there, because mm -hmm. uh, in the eyes of many, Comey was discredited because of the way he handled the Hillary Clinton email investigation. First it was off, then it was on, then it was off. Mm -hmm. uh, he did damage to himself uh, and his credibility as an independent investigator. Yeah, and I think for a lot of Americans, there's this knee-jerk sort of reaction of shock when Trump does a lot of these things, having reported on perhaps the most shocking president in history. Are you ever shocked? Does any of this shock you? No. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would say that. No. I mean, it, 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 because... You know, we, the tradition here among the reporting staff of the Post is empirical. What is, what is the evidence? We're not trying to uh, take a spin on it. And uh, quite frankly, when something shocks you, uh, after that, the second reaction is, gee, that's a good story. <laughs> That's right. Well, Karen, a similar question to you. You've covered several presidential administrations, Obama, Bush, Reagan. Was there a moment that felt similar to any of the moments we're seeing in the Trump administration? You know, I've been trying to think back, and I really think there is just absolutely no precedent. And I, 
I was trying to think through, for instance, what if the saga of Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky had played out in an, we, we did have the Drudge Report, we did have you know news getting around on channels we weren't used to before, but I cannot imagine you know, what that would have been like if we had had Twitter and if we had had a president who was constantly using Twitter. And I, and I also think that, like, historians going forward, I mean, now they, they spend so much time sort of digging into the thought processes of our past presidents. They're going to be able to see what's, what's going on in Donald Trump's, you know, front cortex in, in real time. So, there, no, there is no real at least in my experience, anything that even comes close to a precedent. But, but suppose uh, Clinton did have Twitter. What would he have said about the Monica Lewinsky affair? He would have said, hashtag, I did not have sex with that woman. Hashtag, Ms. Lewinsky. Right. The blue, the blue dress will never know. Sad. <laughs> There'd be a meme circulating that said, close, but no cigar. Uh, <laughs> too far. <laughs> they're they're going to think we set you up for that. Uh, but that, that's actually a great question for you, Dave. You cover Donald Trump by essentially crowdsourcing Twitter for information. How might Watergate have been different had Twitter existed? Well, it's hard for me to know. It's hard to say, but I, I think the thing that... Twitter and social media are wonderful in a lot of ways, and I really benefited from the ability to sort of speak directly to readers and have them speak directly to me. The one thing they're not, it's not good at is taking something like this, the Russia investigation or like, I imagine what Watergate felt like day to day, which is a confusing story where there's lots of little pieces and you don't learn the story linearly. You don't learn the, from beginning to end. You learn pieces as you go along. And so much of journalism uh, about something like that is not just finding out the information, which is hard enough, it's giving, giving it to readers in a way where they can connect it to the mental picture they came in with, right? They can understand, you know, each individual piece, they understand how it fits into a larger whole. And Twitter is not good at that. And I think reporters who spend a lot of their time focused on Twitter or you know, focused on social media in general have a hard time telling stories like that. I mean, one great example this week, there was this guy, Carter Page, um, like the most unlawyered man in America who uh, <laughs> was a, like a low-level uh, sort of person attached to Trump's campaign who apparently had a lot of contacts with Russians. He was interviewed by the House uh, Oversight Committee or Intelligence Committee, some House committee, put out the transcript, right? And there's a lot that's interesting in there, but it's only interesting if you know the sort of larger story of Trump and Russia and you see where Carter Page either disproves things people have said or you see where he, he fills in a hole that was missing. But instead on Twitter, you just get, you know, Page says he went to Moscow in, in May 2016, not June 2016. He met with Deputy Igor such and such instead of Deputy Vladimir so-and-so. No one has any idea what that means. And I think that's one thing that really gets lost when you try to follow a story like this on Twitter. And it, it's one thing that we have to realize is incumbent on us to connect the pieces for readers and to explain to them why it means something to us. It's, it's hard in a story like this, but social media makes it even harder. Yes, yeah, social media makes big things look small and small things look big. <laughs> uh, it, it just completely destroys your sense of proportion if that is your primary diet. Is that why Trump uses Twitter, so his hands look bigger? <laughs> Jeez. Oh. God. <laughs> 
So this is actually a really great question, though, about the media environment that we that we live in now. Sometimes it feels like Trump is is faced with so much scrutiny and so much scrutiny, and so many moments are are. are you know, hyper-examined because of this 24-hour news cycle, because of the news environment we're in, would another, is, is he just, basically, would another president in, in this era face this a similar level of scrutiny that he's facing? But the, the question really should be the power and necessity of incremental coverage. Yeah. I mean, you have to dig into, you know, who wants to, uh, you put people to sleep if you write too much about Carter Page, frankly, but that's part of the story, and you want to get to the bottom of it, and then constructing an authentic narrative that's very aggressive but fair is very difficult to do, and particularly when, you know, where, I, I go back to this path to proof. Where's the path to proof on this? And, you know, we never had it, in the Iran-Contra affair in the end. We never had it in the Clinton impeachment, uh, Lewinsky affair. There, was, there were no tapes. The people closest to Clinton really didn't testify fully. And so, uh, well, we have another kind of hang fire scandal. But can you really, it's, I think the path to proof is gonna be that much harder for people to follow in this era where we have this president who is a complete master of distraction, uh, who, you know, if, if the subject is Russia, he can say, hey, look over there, there are football players kneeling during the national anthem. Um, and sort of then the whole national conversation goes with him. And, you know, I, I think that that is another sort of, it's, it's more incumbent on us to keep our focus, and it is really hard to do in this environment. But, but do you think Trump, when he starts talking about uh, the National Football League and what players are doing and so forth, do you think that's an intentional distraction or that's something where he's speaking from uh, either the heart or, oh, my people are going to like this? I think in, in this particular, I don't think it is always the case, but I think in this particular instance, you know, where he does it on the stage of a campaign rally in Alabama right before a Senate election that is, a Senate primary that is not going to go the way he wants it, um, yes, I do think that that's intentional. I think that the next president probably is going to run on the platform that he or she will be boring. Um, and I, th I think Trump is getting boring. He's becoming boring. He's somebody who, his words at least, the actions of his presidency are very interesting, the actions of his administration. He himself is becoming boring. We know what he's going to do in every situation. We know, and he, so that's, I think, often why he reaches for things like calling Kim Jong-un uh, the little rocket man, threatening nuclear war. I think he want, he's reaching for the old high and is trying to get back to where he was and command everyone's attention. He's becoming boring because we sort of can't anticipate what he's going to say in any given situation. We've seen him, we've seen him sort of always tricks now, before. Now, David, full disclosure, mm -hmm. you get up in the morning and do you look at his tweets? No. You don't. No, and I, I because they're boring. Because they're boring. I mean, like you want There's you can imagine a situation where they're it's not boring. It's because uh, you're a great reporter and you're focused on other things. <laughs> well, and, that, and, and that's to your credit. But 
boring? Some, some things he Even says... Whether you like it or don't like it, it certainly is not boring. His actions are interesting, but a lot of his words, like you, so much of what he says is untethered from a thing he's going to do. If, sure. I, if I thought that his, his words always portended an action, I would, I would find them more interesting. But I feel like often they are untethered. There's something he saw on television, something he's interested in for the moment, something he's just saying he doesn't intend to follow up on. I feel like we've sort of seen that before. In but Karen thinks we're mani he's manipulating the press and the public. Is that right? I, I think that, yes, in some instances. He, I mean, he knows, he knows where the, the dialogue is going to go when he says something really provocative. And, you know, I admire your focus. I was on book leave earlier this summer, and I decided as a sort of self-disciplinary uh, measure I would take Twitter off my phone, and I did for three days. So. <laughs> I'm very impressed. That's longer than I would have expected, to be honest. But th this is a great point. So, you know, Trump's he kind of tries to sow doubt, not kind of, he certainly tries to sow doubt in the media. And we're faced with these questions about how, how we cover the right things and how our credibility remains intact. So, you know, our, our executive editor, Marty Barron, is here somewhere. So we have to be careful how we answer this question. But how do we overcome the distrust of news? I think there's a couple of ways. Um, one, I think we have to be so cognizant of the fact that one of the great things about the Trump era for us as journalists is that a lot more people are interested in the news, in, the, in our particular brand of news, national news, political news, than there usually would be in the first year of a new presidency. Most people pay attention to the campaign, and then they sort of go off and do, do something else during the first year of a, of a presidency. So many people are interested in this, people who don't really read us. And they're coming to us, and we have to be so conscious of the fact that we will have to show them the value we provide, right? Not just that we're unbiased, and that's an important part of it. We have to be sure that we don't, in our social media, in our headlines, in our commentary, do write about Trump in a way that if you're interested in Trump, if you ever voted for him, you're going to read the first 10 words and say, oh, these people hate Donald Trump. I'm not going to read them. We have to make sure that we show people we have an open mind, which is what we should have about every individual instance, every story, but also that we show them how we know what we know, that we're not just blathering about sort of hot takes, that when we report on Donald Trump, we're going to give you facts, we're going to show you how we know these things we're telling you, um, and be able to win the trust of people who come to us for the first time. This is a great moment for us to reach all these people, and we can't snarkily, t you know, tweeting for an audience of 200 other political journalists say something that drives people away, and we never get to them to the, through the first story. There's and it can get you fired also yeah. these days. But there's, a, there's sort of a new con, uh, journalistic convention in the Trump era that didn't exist before. And that is because when we deal with unnamed sources, it's, it's a necessary evil. But increasingly, mainstream news organizations will tell you we talked, according to 15 White House officials we talked to. Have you guys noticed this? It's no, like no, but, but it's not 15 White House officials. It's 15 people who Trump talks to or, or in the Republican orbit. It's, it's kind of a squishy attribution, but, but, but it's a big you number. Put a, you put a number on it, though, whereas, uh, you know, it's, you know it, it, it used to be you would just say, according to people who had talked to the president. 
That's right. It's, I think it's part of showing our work. It's part of, you know, we want people that may be reading fake news on Facebook, right? They may, you know, they may want to know in our story what makes us better than a number one Patriot News that they just read that's really written by Macedonian teenagers. You know, <laughs> what, can we, what can we put in our story that shows people how we know what we know and how, to, how it's more trustworthy? I mean, it's not going to be, we're not going to win them over with one story, but every story is an opportunity to lose somebody like that. Yeah. All right. I'm going to ask you guys the big question here. And this is, is Trump remaking the American presidency? Who wants to take it first? It's a big one. <laughs> Bob, it's you. It's you, Bob. <laughs> uh, he's renamed something. Yeah. Uh, and there's no, I mean, it, it's different. And, uh, it, but, but David's exactly right. We've got, we've got to be very empirical about it. We've got to, uh, I mean, if we, I don't want to, take this poll of this, uh, even do. this not, uh, great <laughs> audience, how many people basically don't trust the media? Right. And we know it's, it's a high number who don't distrust. And it's a long road back to be trusted and to be credible. And that's something I think people in our business have to work on very hard, need to be introspective about the reasons some of them are political but you know we need to do better and sometimes there is a smugness and self-satisfaction of people on television that betrays uh, a bias and a uh, we've got to work on that and the in the end it will all be about the evidence and the quality of evidence that's mustered and by people looking at all of the Trump things, including the press. I mean, David's the model of taking something. Who would have ever thought that Trump charities would be a big story? Gratefully, Dave did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we won't know about whether Trump's remade the presidency until we see the next president. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, and particularly until we see how Congress treats the next president. I mean, Congress has become so partisan to where all the oversight functions under D's and R's um, is, is sort of thrown out the window and made subservient to partisanship. All the sort of policy making that Congress really doesn't want to legislate these things. It doesn't want to have oversight over its own party's president. And I think that when we, if we see how Congress, the Republican or Democrat, reacts to Trump and then whether whatever independent congressional power is created under Trump, whether that survives to the next president, I think it's going to be hard to know. You'll know by the, how Congress treats this president on his way, you know, when he leaves in four years or eight years or whenever. What about you, Karen? Has Trump changed the presidency forever? Uh, no, not forever. Um, I think that every president has an opportunity to, to remake the presidency, and some of them seize it, and some of them fumble it, and um, whoever follows Trump is, you know, likely... Uh, David Axelrod... Um, always says that, you know, voters in elections are usually looking for a remedy and not a replica of whoever the last president was and however they, they conducted themselves. And um, there's, there's no reason to think that won't be the case next time. I think Cong Trump is actually doing, I'm not sure he's doing it on purpose, he's doing a lot to empower Congress. I mean, think of how much power he's given Congress over health care, tax reform, 
on healthcare, they tripped over themselves and fell down, but they could, on tax reform, they have, he's giving them a lot of leeway to write their own legislation. So many other, Obama particularly, you know, was sort of trying to dictate the terms of these policy arguments to his own party's Congress. So Trump is trying to give Congress that power back. So far, they haven't really seemed to want it, but if they take it, that could really be a change in the balance of power between those two branches. I think we should do one, the little pin that David is wearing. It, it, it's, it's, it doesn't say, make America great again. It's the Houston Astros pin. Hopefully there's some Astros fans here tonight. Have, uh, a have, couple. Have, uh, you know, I mean, my didn't the World Series end of, uh, you know, weeks ago or something like I'm that? I'm wearing when, it all winter. When do you, you're going to wear it all winter. So spring training starts at least. I do have one more question for you guys, but while I ask that, we're going to be ready to take some audience questions soon. So there should be some mics set up or about to be set up at the foot of these two aisles. Um, so we ask that you guys just line up behind those mics if you get ready and get your questions ready, and we will answer them just after this one. But please do, do start lining up. So the last question I have for you guys is, what should people look for in the next one to two years? What are the big things that might happen that will define this presidency? Or you know, what should we be aware of? What, what are the things to look out for? No pressure. We're just asking you to predict the future. <laughs> well, I think the most obvious one is the, the you know the midterms. The mid. I mean, in fact, you know, here we're sitting. I'm sitting up here without my phone and without my Twitter and not knowing at all. Can somebody tell me what's happening in Virginia? <laughs> Does anyone know? <laughs> I didn't catch that, but sounds exciting. <laughs> uh, you know, that's that's going to be a, a referendum on this presidency, and uh, you know, it's it's likely to be transformative. Yeah. To me, the big question in the next couple of years, you know, barring any sort of catastrophe or war, is the Democratic Party, what it becomes, you know, how it's. Tr it, it eventually reforms itself around some message or whether it becomes a party again that is very different in Oklahoma than it is in Massachusetts. Uh, it, they're just it's in such disarray now and they've chosen to refight 2016, I think, because it's easier than looking forward. Even to uh, Ralph Northam in Virginia may win tonight, but his ads, I know because I watched a lot of the World Series, uh, his ads were all about the other guy. I mean, it was, it was a rerun of, you know, they were about Trump, they were about Gillespie. Um, that party... Will eventually, I mean, because the, there's only two options, they always they they'll rebound. But what they are when they rebound, and what how they package themselves, it, I'm fascinated to see what that is. I, I think the question is, and I'm uh, I'm an optimist that uh, does Trump deliver on something? The job of the president is to establish what the next stage of good is for a majority of people in the country, and then lay out a plan and do it. That may be winning a war, make the country safer, uh, doing something with health care or taxes. And if in the, this one to two year period, he's able to say, you know, I've done some of these things, he may be in a better position. If not, and let's be realistic, nothing has happened in Congress. There's a lot. The the world is a very dangerous place. I listened to a CIA person recently say there are 20 countries where the fuse of instability is lit and we don't know when they're going to go off and so will that happen? Is that something Trump can deal with and manage? Uh, 
people are going to ask that question. Is you know the isn't that the old Reagan question, Karen? You know, are you better off today when than you were two years ago? And that's ultimately the measure. Yeah, all right. And with that, we will take your guys' questions. Uh, just tell us what your name is and ask your question. We'll start on this side. Okay. Hi, Ann Wilcox. I want to ask about another question or issue that came up this week. Uh, Juan Williams said on one of the talk shows that President Obama had basically diverted money from the Democratic Party with his Organizing for America fundraising. Do you think yes. that was a blind spot in him thinking about his own legacy? And uh, also, what do you think about the Mark Felt movie? <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, um, the what Juan Williams that, said. I don't know that that's well, true or not. Yeah. You? The fact. Yeah. The fact is that, um, and it's also what we've seen in the real story in Donna Brazil's book, is that I think President Obama's political legacy is very much tarnished by the fact that. He left, you know, his party decimated on the state and local level, that what they lost something like 900 state legislative seats. They lost two-thirds of the Democratic governorships. And the Democratic Party mechanism, there was never any sharing of financial resources, sharing of data that had really left the party very ill-equipped in the 2016 election, whoever its nominee was going to be. And yes, a lot of that falls right on President Obama. In the Mark Felt movie, uh, <laughs> a half a star. <laughs> I, I, I didn't have anything to do with it. And it, it, um, it's a, a very strong performance by Liam Neeson as Mark Felt and captures... Uh, the, the internal struggle he was involved in in being a Watergate source as the number two uh, in the FBI. But it, uh, I, I watched it carefully, and I don't think it made sense. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's head over here. Hi, uh, Amy Andrews. Um, so I've been a social studies high school teacher for years, and one of the things that we talk about is the beauty of the Constitution is the ambiguity in a lot of it, and that they wrote it to adapt to changing times. And Article 2 especially gives the president kind of a lot of unrestrained um, power in how to execute the laws. Has this president truly tested what that means to maybe where we need to redefine what that says. I think that won't be truly tested until we see Congress fail to act in the way that Congress is expected to act in terms of enforcing their branch of government, basically. And, and I think that Congress has ceded a lot of the power that it was given in Article One. Um, again, it hasn't declared war in you know, we've had however many international conflicts uh, since World War II. Congress hasn't exercised that power. It no longer takes control of the power of the purse. It rolls everything into one big, gigantic muffin at the end of the year. And Article Two is, there's a lot in there, but it's pretty ambiguous. And, and its presidents, you know, starting with probably Woodrow Wilson, uh, have each sort of expanded that territory. You're uh, to be commended for teaching. That's yes. wonderful. Yes. Good for you. But the, the, the Constitution is uh, resilient but fragile. 
No question about that. And uh, I don't think Article 2 is ambiguous at all. It's the executive branch, and it says uh, the president is the executive branch, and it's not the National Security Council or the cabinet or anybody else. And presidents can, uh, they set the agenda, they can start wars, they can do things, and in the age of Trump, uh, it, I mean, you've, you've got to follow it and where it goes. And then the question is, is he going to do some, you're, you were suggesting we need to do something with the Constitution, mm -hmm. amend it, or? Well, yeah, I guess that's, that's what I'm asking is, do, do some of those powers need to be redefined given, I mean, all presidents throughout history have kind of interpreted how to, you know, lead the bureaucracy. And in this way, are we seeing that this is a reason that maybe things need to be changed? I, who would you give those powers to? Do we give, uh, that's a great question. Do we give more power to the legislative branch? But then again, then we're changing the balance. I think that's Yeah, I mean, the Constitution's worked pretty well. And I, I would be optimistic about the, that balance. And as we were talking about in the Nixon case, it was finally the Republicans who rose up against him and said, as Barry Goldwater put it, too many lies, too many crimes. All right. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Jacob Robbins. Um, besides uh, continually asking myself, how did this happen? How did Donald Trump defy all odds and get elected um, even a year later? Uh, something I often find myself asking is, um, how, will, how will this end for us as a country and how will we judge this time uh, in history? I understand it is not even a year uh, into his presidency, but um, uh, this question is for everybody, but in particular, uh, Mr. Woodward, um, you know, while you were reporting on Watergate, I'm sure you had uh, times where you thought, how will this end for our country and how will history judge this? I'm just wondering um, if any of you have any thoughts as to how history will judge this time uh, and what, what role Donald Trump will even play uh, outside of the presidency. Uh, I, I mean, my answer is we really don't know. And David's on the right track here is the reporting needs to be very aggressive but fair-minded and comprehensive uh, and uh, we'll see what happens here uh, I, I mean I, I still at my age I get up in the morning and my first thought is what are the bastards hiding <laughs> the Democrats or Republicans and I don't mean that in an angry way I mean they're if, if there's a problem here, it's too much secrecy in government. Mm -hmm. I talked to somebody who really knows the government, and I said, how much do we know of what really goes on in public that's debated in the media? And he said, 25%. And I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> and, you know, that may be a high number. <laughs> And there's just too much secrecy. And so that's what we as journalists are, are fighting, I think, is let's get this out in the open. Let's answer questions. Let's, let us see the, the documents. And then that history will answer that question. Yeah. All right. Thank you for your question. My name is Gordon Evans. I recall during the George W. Bush administration toward the end of that administration 
President Bush was not popular and probably would not have gotten reelected. Then President Bush declared war against Iraq. The nation rallied around him and he won a second term. Would this president do the same thing, declaring war against North Korea or Iran, knowing that would probably secure a second term? Well, I, th I think 9-11 happened also in the first term, and, and that was probably the, the real issue that got George W. Bush reelected. And also, uh, those midterm elections in 2002 were the first time since Franklin D. Roosevelt that a president's party did not lose seats in Congress in the president's first midterm election. Um, I, I do think that was a different era. I think the country now is, is very weary of endless, of conflicts that just don't end. I think our experience of war, the most recent experience of war uh, at that point had been the Gulf War. You know, a, a quick, painless conflict which showed that America was technologically dominant. You know, we, we were the super, superpower we thought we were. I mean, that sort of erased the memories of Vietnam. I, at this point, a war against Iran or North Korea, yeah, the backdrop would be the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, wars against far less powerful and dangerous countries that we still can't win. Thank you. Hi. <clears throat> uh, my name's Anita Wadwani. Uh, thank you. Um, my question is, it seems that uh, President Trump's strategy is to literally undermine everything that President Obama did. And just wanted your thoughts on that. And does that predict how he will move forward in the coming years? And how dangerous is that? Um, I've talked to Ambassador Verma and um, other folks in like the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, it's just an example, things with Iran and, and other things. So just wanted your thoughts on that. Thanks. Presidents live in the unfinished business of their predecessor. And uh, if we had uh, Trump here and, uh, and we asked him and he was really giving an honest answer, he doesn't think he's undermining, to use your word, what Obama did because he disagrees with so much of it. Now, whether that's valid, whether that's going to happen or not, but... Uh, it, it's a continuum of policy and trouble, and then we break it into four-year segments. And uh, presidents, I mean, look at the, un, I, I think by Obama's own definition, uh, he said, and this is true, uh, to Trump as they were going up to the inaugural, said, you will be stay awake at night because of North Korea. That was unfinished business. And I think if you had Obama here, he would acknowledge that they didn't do enough to solve that problem. Yeah. All right, thank you. Hi, Doris Marlin. This administration, um, the, the consequences of their position will be very long-term. Um, similar to what the last question was, I don't think anything will be as long-term as far as damage and irreversibility as the um, lack, or as what is happening with the environment and related to climate change. And I mean, especially with the threat of withdrawing 
and the climate talks occurring right now with so little um, focus on the part, or fo so little focus in the direction of resolving or working to resolve the issue. So um, how, how and what can uh, be done when literally the entire world, with the exception of this administration, is going in one direction and they're going the other? Well, the Trump administration just released a report that acknowledged that climate change was in fact caused by humans. So that's, that's something. <laughs> and I, I, it, that situation is, um, the, I think Syria signed the, the climate pact today. So the US now, it used to be only us, Honduras, and, and no, us, Nicaragua, and Syria that had not signed it. Now Nicaragua and Syria have signed it. Um, so we're alone. You know, the, the, the most optimistic way to view that is that the, the, the Paris Climate Agreement is uh, just a piece of, piece of paper. Everybody that was a member of it has to now live up to it, all these countries, uh, including us. And so by making himself such a villain uh, on that, in that world, uh, Trump may have galvanized other people in other countries and drawn attention to the subject in the United States, I think, in a way that he didn't expect. And within this country, a, a lot of states are stepping up. Governors mm -hmm. are stepping up. He jumped us had that sort of a reverse Midas effect in some ways that things he touches, you know, things he tries to do become less popular because he's trying to do them. Think about repealing Obamacare. This is another another one. So it's possible that will be the, the good outcome. But it's, we certainly are giving away leverage uh, on the world stage by backing away from things like this, it's sort of having the opposite of the role that America used to have, which was convening people. And if you look at that, if you can get the politics out of it and it's hard, uh, that is, may just be a giant mistake on Trump's part, that he should have just said, okay, let's do this, let's move slowly. Uh, it was not gonna strangle this country. And so many of these international agreements have to do with mindset. Yeah. Gordon okay. Liddy do that? <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to take two more questions on this side and one more on this side. I'm sorry for everyone who, who's still standing, but we're just going to do two more here and one more there. Okay. Hi, uh, I'm Alberto. Uh, my question is, in what context would you imagine uh, Mike Pence becoming relevant enough to catch a headline? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, I mean, no vice president is ever that important, uh, or most of them aren't. Um, except that they influenced the president's decision-making. So Cheney was really important for that reason. Biden occasionally was. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of interviews that show Pence as a major pusher of Donald Trump toward one decision or another. There's certainly people, I think, in his orbit that play that role, that influencing Trump to adopt one position or the other. I don't often see Pence playing that role. Um, maybe he's playing it in a way that we're not seeing. Uh, that's the thing that I'm interested in. As I said earlier, I think one of the big questions about Trump is as he doesn't use the levers of power that are available to him, who else is using them? You know, you, so you could look at somebody like Scott Pruitt at EPA, Rick Perry at Energy, if they're using some of the power that has devolved to them because Trump doesn't use it. You look at Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, Kevin Brady in Congress, how are they using the power that Trump is giving back to them? Uh, if Mike Pence has that kind of role behind the scenes where he's able to shape policy, I'd really be interested in him. I, I haven't seen, uh, except for you know, the person who's the head of um, CMS, the uh, Medicaid, is a Mike Pence person from Indiana, so he may have influence in that. So area. what you're saying is Pence is boring. He's <laughs> Yes. 
I think if we if we ever do have President Pence, we will we in the news media will ever will look back upon Trump. Spend enough time looking at vice presidents. <laughs> but I actually think that Pence's uh, it would be dangerous for Pence and his relationship with Trump were he to be getting a lot of headlines, and especially as you know the the Russian investigation is heating up, and uh, the last thing. I were Mike Pence that I would want is for the president to be seeing me as sort of positioning myself. Yeah. All right, thank you. Hi, my name is Catherine Armstrong. This has been a super interesting evening. Uh, my question is, why is it broken? When did it break? <laughs> and why, why have at least the last two presidents really not been able to figure out how to do the right thing um, and walk across the aisle. Well, easier to describe the creation of the universe <laughs> than uh, to answer that question. It, it's a hard one, and I, I'm, I'm still optimistic. I don't think it's broken. I think there are... Uh, Unlike that microphone. <laughs> yes, right. I, I just... I, obviously, there are problems, and there is... Uh, uh, gridlock on lots of these things, but uh, what always happens in history is there's a crisis, and then people, that was 9-11, uh, and as you said, Bush probably got reelected because of that. Uh, so I'm, I wouldn't say, uh, and I think uh, in many cases, uh, Obama did, I, I wrote two books on Obama and got to know him and the operation pretty thoroughly and he just didn't know how to be tough. He was, he did not like war and uh, that sent the message to the Putins and the Assads of the world, oh I can run over you and uh, that didn't work but to Obama's credit we did not have another war. And uh, I served in the Navy in the 1960s. Uh, that's my family there. <laughs> uh, and uh, I remember the Vietnam War vividly. And we do not need another war if it can be avoided. Okay, and our, our very last question. All right, thank you. My name is Mike Avery. My question is, given uh, President Trump's recent characterization of his generals, when he refer, refers to matters of national security, are we in danger of blurring the lines or drawing what was once truly an apolitical entity, the military, into a political realm uh, in terms of civilian control of the military? <laughs> I think that we have seen, actually, that, you know, the, John Kelly being the most obvious example, a former Marine general became, becomes the White House Chief of Staff. It's the most obvious example of a, a military person assuming some political power. I have to say that so far I have not seen evidence to worry about sort of people talk about, oh, will there be a military coup? Is the military already in charge? I think somebody like Mattis at the Pentagon has done a good job of trying to observe the boundaries between civilian leadership and military leadership. Um, so I'm, I'm not worried about that. I think the bigger politicization, 
The boundary, I think, that has been crossed in a more obvious way is at the CIA, where the CIA director, Pompeo, former House member, Republican, has been much more political and overtly political, um, and the Post has written a lot about this, than past CIA directors have. I, I don't think there's been an example where we have, you know, there's been some action outcome by the CIA that's been politicized, but he certainly has welcomed politics into part of his role as CIA director. That's, to me, where the boundary's been crossed more. And those people, those uh, former generals, uh, are civilians, and a lot of people think, and there's evidence to support this, that they don't have enough influence. A lot of people wish they, the, and I'm sorry I'm focusing on war, but I think that is the tragedy that can befall any nation. And the generals are the reluctant warriors. I remember going and listening to the Army Chief of Staff once, uh, Ray Odierno, and he said, the job of the Army, number one, is to be ready to fight and win wars. He said, the number two job of the Army is to prevent war. And I think that's true, and I think that's what the experienced generals or people who've seen combat or seen wars so, you know, I, I'm not alarmed at all. Well, I, I do think, though, it was pretty unsettling when the White House press secretary, Sarah Sanders, when, when you know, General Kelly had said something that was simply flat out not true and was provably not true about a Florida congresswoman. And when she was questioned about it from the podium, she said, you shouldn't be challenging the account of a four-star general. And that is, I, I think the, uh, the transgression here, if there is one, is not necessarily on the part of these generals who have decided to serve in a different way, but perhaps in, um, you know, in the, the way this is being framed by people in the White House who, who don't have that military experience. Yes, but still, we it's, it's not something to be alarmed about. Uh, that was what the White House press secretary said. Now, some of these people have said things that are quite controversial and so forth, but by and large, in uh, when I got out of college and went into the Navy, one of the first jobs I had aboard a ship, which was a relocation site for the president in case of nuclear war, is along with another young officer was in charge of the sealed authentication system to order nuclear war. And that was back in 1965, and I've, I've thought and had that this is the thing we need to prevent. If, if when I interviewed President Obama once, it, he just said, out of the blue, he said, what, what do you think I worry about the most? And I just shut up and, you know, <laughs> uh, didn't even, and, and he said, I worry most about a nuclear weapon going off in an American city. That would be a game changer. And uh, he's, he's exactly right. So not to lean on it too hard. I think having these people who are generals around is a good thing for Trump and a good thing for the country by and large. Well, no better place to end than nuclear war. <laughs> um, 
You guys can subscribe to Can He Do That on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, wherever else you get your podcasts. You should also tune in to some of our other Washington Post podcasts like Constitutional and The Daily 202, which is also available on your Amazon Alexa. And in case you guys missed it, on your seats, there is a Can He Do That card. On the back is a code for a free 30-day digital subscription to The Washington Post for new and returning subscribers. So don't forget to take that home and check it out. And lastly, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who made this possible, of course, to The Washington Post, to our national editor, Stephen Ginsburg, to our executive producer for audio, Jessica Stahl, for our amazing PR, just incredible person who put this whole thing together, Azar Alfadil Miranda, and last but not least, the wonderful, the impressive, the working while she's sick, my producer, Carol Alderman, somewhere in the back there. She's amazing, so thank you to everybody. All right, guys, have a great night. If you like Can He Do That? You should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington Washington, Washington, Washington Post. Post.